Oh, man, that was fun. <laughs> we're, we're continuing our series, Getting Bys. This is as good as it gets. And, and we just want to, we want to continue to build community here. This is what, it, what it's all about. Uh, we're actually t- talking about community next week as this series is going through our values as a church. We looked at acceptance the first week, authenticity last week, and tonight... Uh, what I want us to look at tonight is uh, generosity. And I came up with a title, I don't know why, because I don't post it anywhere, but I'll share the title with you, because I just had fun saying it. We're going to focus on you, your field, and all that money. And that's why I put a picture of a field there. You, your field, and all that money. Because what's really at stake when we talk about generosity? Instantly, we usually connect it with a dollar value. We connect it with, here it is again, the church isn't meeting their budget, we need to give out a few more dollars, we need to help them to sustain it, um, and we need to get by. And it's funny because more often than not, if you've grown up or been around the church for any period of time, that's usually what you connect the word generosity to, is this just this mentality of we need to be more generous and give our money. But let me explain my heart behind generosity. The reason we came up with generosity as one of our core values as a church isn't to get people's money. Rather, it's a posture that we're wanting to take. It's not about giving generously, but it's actually about living generously. And in fact, as we live generously, it's, it's that that allows us to live in this place of abundance. It allows us to, to kind of shift our perspective and realize that we actually have so much more than we think we do. Actually, Chris, he works for Scotiabank, and I was reminded of his slogan, Scotiabank says, you're richer than you think. Thought he'd be proud of me, but he and Alex are away on a date this weekend. But you see, more often than not, when things get tight, the question begins... How do we get by? How do we survive? What can we cut? Whose position do we need to let go? And there's validity to all of these things. But how does generosity actually shape the individual lives? How does generosity shape our families, our community, and our churches? It's not just about what needs to be cut or who needs to be let go. Because what happens if we start focusing on some of those things, we might not even realize that we're sliding into this other territory And we're starting to focus inward. We're starting to operate and think through this lens and filter of scarcity. That suddenly we don't, we aren't operating of this place of abundance when we want to let everyone partake. We actually are operating out of this place of scarcity and we want to protect ourselves. And people start feeling that they're pushed away. What usually happens too is there's kind of this death spiral that, I, begin, that I, I believe begins happening when we start closing up and protecting ourselves. Because we start going from one thing to the next. We, we start questioning, well, why isn't our church growing? Well, why, why aren't new families coming through the door? Why are, why are so-and-so missing and I haven't seen them for months, weeks, sometimes years? But as we start looking at those questions and we start sharing that and speaking that out loud, we're developing this new narrative. We're developing a new story that's actually directing our actions, whether we realize it or not. 
our vision at the back there is making Jesus known, seeing lives changed, transforming our community. That's what we want to do by living generously. But if we start kind of protecting ourselves and putting the shell around us, we don't realize what we're communicating aren't those things. We're communicating we only want to do that if we have excess, if we have more. But how do we operate out of this place of abundance with what we have? So I think the answer to the question, why isn't the church growing, becomes quite simple in a number of different aspects. And I know it's a weird question to ask because we ourselves are just a small church that's just emerging. But the question... The answer to that question that I've realized more often than not is actually that we're just not that awesome to be around. Because the thing is, people come out, and it might be their first time, and you're thinking, yes, we have a new family. But then you realize there's three other families or four other families that aren't here, and all they hear is you communicating, well, where's so-and-so? Why don't we have this? Why isn't it more? Rather than celebrating the one that is there, the one new family that has come. You see, there are certain people who are just energizing to be around. There's this magnetism to them, and you're just drawn to them. They're life-giving. You hang out with them, and the stories that they tell just have you in stitches, and the, the words that they share, they inspire you and empower you to do so much more than what you feel capable of sometimes, and you just want to get more and more time with them. And then there's other people who are just life-sucking. And you're like, come on. And you just walk away feeling so heavy and weighed down. And I, I feel bad that I used to have this one, one youth who I would refer to as a time suck. And he just wanted to suck every ounce of time and energy out of me. But I had to shift my perspective in my relationship with him. And he's actually one, one of the guys that I grew very close to, and we're still trying to plan a, a football trip to Green Bay, where that's his favorite team. But it wouldn't have gotten there viewing him that way. But so you see, there's, there's people who are energizing, and then there's people who weigh you down. And sadly, more often than not, Christians don't always fit the description of the energizing people. We feel, or we even say we have this message to share. We, we share about Jesus and God and all these amazing things and that he's wonderful and awe-inspiring and miraculous. But we say it so boring. We're kind of like, yeah, you should really follow this guy. He's amazing. He rose from the dead but don't raise your hands too high. <laughs> but Jesus was mesmerizing to be around. Crowds would follow him. People would hang on his words. People wanted to witness what he would do next. He was the son of God. And he was making claims that were so revolutionary, but we've just kind of crammed down into these basic principles that are just black and white and dry. And Paul, one of the apostles who met Jesus on the Emmaus Road and had his eyes opened 
after being blinded for a few days, had his eyes opened to who Jesus truly was. This guy was also mesmerizing to be around. This guy had deep relationships. He had influence. People wanted to support the work that he was doing, be with him, go on his missionary trips. And then the early church. The early church was known for their radical compassion and their radical generosity. And we're actually going to be looking at an example of the early church today. But it's kind of an obscure text that I chose. You see, I, I don't always like coming right to the text that are like, God loves a cheerful giver. Because that's easy to kind of summarize just like that. I said it. God loves a cheerful giver. But I'm coming at it with a text that doesn't always characterize what we think of the early church when we think of them. And what I mean by that is oftentimes, especially in church planting world, as I've gotten used to and, and talked to different people, people will say, man, I'm planting a church. It's going to be just like the early church. We're going to share everything and do everything. And it's like, well, in the early church, people dropped dead on a couple accounts because of their giving. And that's what we're actually going to look at tonight. In Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32 and going into Acts chapter 5. It's the story of Ananias and his wife, Sapphira. So Acts chapter 4 says the whole congregation of believers was united as one. One heart, one mind. And no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. They shared everything they had. And Luke, he's the author of, of Acts. So you have the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Luke wrote Luke, and this is kind of the sequel. You could actually put them uh, volume one, volume two together, Luke and Acts. And the book of Luke is uh, Jesus' ministry on earth, his death and resurrection, and then Acts is the continuation and the exploration of the early church. So he's writing here, and he says, from time to time, those who own land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. So part of what Luke is doing here is he, he's linking this new movement, this Jesus movement, to the Old Testament. In fact, the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. He's making the point that the early Christian movement, which is now accomplished in and through Jesus, is in fact the true covenant community that God had always intended to set up. They're now embodying this new kingdom community, which was always God's design from the beginning. And the good news, the gospel, is that there's a new king, there's a new kingdom that's coming in and through the work of Jesus. And again, I touched on this briefly last week. It's not about getting away from here. It's not about someday better someday in the future, someday after we die. It's not just about getting to heaven. But as N.T. Wright states, it's by transforming things within this world, bringing the sphere of earth into the presence and under the rule of God. It's not just someday later. The worlds are being brought together now. So the early church, they're united in one heart, one mind. They're the embodiment of this new kingdom under the kingship of Jesus. And they're looking out for one another. They're taking care of each other. Now, 
Just a quick side note, they didn't sell everything that they had. Sometimes we feel like this is a little prescriptive and we need to say, okay, let's follow this example and sell everything. And they still met in people's homes as the early church. They still had possessions and they still had, had property to be able to support some of the early church movement and the missionaries. So they didn't sell everything, but they shared everything. They made sure each person's needs were taken care of. But now chapter 5 begins and enters a man named Ananias. So Ananias and his wife Sapphira decide to sell a piece of property. But they also decide to hold back some of the proceeds for themselves. Now this doesn't seem like a big deal, just a quick reading of it. It's as if you have an extra property, say it's worth a half a million dollars, you sell it, and you give 400000 to the church and you keep 100000 to yourself. No big deal, right? That's still super generous to give that much money. But Peter unleashes on Ananias, and he asks him, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? What's this about? Isn't Ananias already being generous? Is Peter just wanting more money? Isn't it generous enough that Ananias is giving any money to the church? Well, if you look a little closer, it actually isn't about the money. Peter explains that they actually could have done whatever they wanted with the money. He says you you could have kept the property or you could have just kept all the proceeds to yourself. So what's actually at stake here? Well, first of all, the way Luke is telling his story He wants us to know that at the end of chapter 4, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. So according to Luke, one of the most direct results of the grace of God at work is people being generous and taking care of each other's material needs. Food, water, clothes, shelter, health care, that sort of thing. In other words, grace isn't this abstract theological concept, but it's a reality that leads people to take action on behalf of each other. Grace, in other words, has implications. And when we recognize and respond to the grace and generosity that we ourselves have received, it creates human connection. It creates community and one that's grounded in real needs, being met by real people in real ways. So I find it interesting that of all the things Luke could have told us about the early church, one of the most important things he wants us to know is that you weren't on your own. So now let's look at why this mattered so much to Peter. Peter is the guy who knew Jesus, but said he didn't know Jesus. Peter's the guy that when things got dicey, denied Jesus. Now Peter's in charge of the church, and Ananias is being inauthentic. Could authenticity, which we looked at last week, be what's truly at stake and is important to Peter in this matter? 
You see, Ananias is pretending that this is all the money he got. So if he sold it for half a million, he's pretending he only sold it for the 400000 that he's giving, or whatever the amount may be. He's being inauthentic. And Peter himself has dealt with the guilt and the shame of being inauthentic. And Peter knows that inauthenticity can kill the life of a community quickly. So it's not the money that gets Peter all fired up. It's never been about the money. It's about protecting the life of the community. It's protecting what's emerging and evolving and taking care of one another's needs. It's about participating in this new kind of world, a new kingdom. It's about each of us doing our part when we're able to. And I know sometimes we don't have any money. We don't have any extra resources. Or we might not even have much hope. But it's in those moments when we need each other. It's in those moments that we need to know that others have our back. A generous life is about looking beyond ourselves and knowing that we're not on our own. So Peter tells him that he not only lied to them, this new kingdom community, the, the church, but he lied to God. And when Ananias heard those words, he fell down dead. Just like that. The people who witnessed this, of course, are freaked out, and some young guys come and carry the body away and go bury it in the field. Three hours later, Sapphira shows up, and Peter asks if the money that was given was the wholesale price of the property. She says yes, and again, Peter says, how could you lie? How could you test the Holy Spirit? And the guys who just buried her husband are just getting back, and he says, they're ready to now take you out. Carry her out, not assassinate her. <laughs> just clarifying that piece. <laughs> and right then and there, Sapphira falls over dead. So the young guys come, carry her out, bury her next to her husband, and everybody is freaked out all over again. But now this is where I want to pause for a moment in the biblical narrative and talk about karma. Because karma, it seems a bit odd to bring up since it's a Hindu and a Buddhist principle, but I, I think we all somewhat understand the basic elements of what karma is. It's that if you do good, then you receive good, and if you do bad, then you receive bad. More often than not, I think that we actually operate out of this understanding. You see, if you're driving down White Church Road or coming up 56 Highway and you have someone riding your tail and honking, flashing their lights, and you're like, come on, I've got kids in the car. And then finally they whip around you, they might wave some sign language to you, and they take <laughs> off. And then you're just pulling into Binbrook, and you see the flashing lights going. And you're like, yes, you got it. Justice prevailed. <laughs> it's, it's that same concept that we have that they also had in, first century, in the first century. As, as they're looking at famines and storms, as, as whether the gods are angry with you or happy with you. But the message that we have of grace, of forgiveness, isn't that the message we're supposed to share? Isn't that kind of the biblical message that, that we're supposed to lean into? 
And it, it works the other way around too. That if we're doing good things, then we kind of assign, oh man, they, they've, they got this because they've been doing good things. They're following God's will. So they're receiving all these blessings. Our minds naturally want to connect the events together. Our minds instinctively want to say, okay, they're doing good, so they're receiving good. They, they did bad, but, and they, re, they received bad. But I believe that this is actually a dangerous way to view things. Because what happens then when we're following God and we still receive a bad medical diagnosis? What happens when we're following God and tragedy strikes? What about people who don't know God? And they seem to have it all together and they're just getting more and more stuff and there's not a care in the world. I believe that the, the idea of karma is anti-biblical and it's not what we're shown in scripture. So we need to be careful about connecting events. And I go into all of this to merely say, so why did God kill Ananias? Well, it actually doesn't say that God killed Ananias. God isn't blamed for their deaths. It's the mind wanting to connect the events. Our modern minds are we're wanting explanations for what exactly happened. And if we don't have any proof, we sometimes like to create our own explanations. Well, maybe it was food poisoning. Maybe it was a heart attack or maybe, and so on and so on. But here's the point that I'm, I'm wanting to make is that it, the first century early church, they connected these events too. Luke connected these events and there was a great fear that came in them. But as we're getting sidetracked on how they died and why they died and what exactly happened, I believe what we're actually doing is missing the point and power of the story that's able to transform us and wake us up. The point of the story isn't, was this a supernatural death? Was this God's judgment coming down right then and there? Those miss the point. There's so much more power at stake here that's able to transform us and wake us up to what God is doing. Luke is showing us that the resurrection life that's found in Jesus led to the formation of a community of generous and honest people who gave themselves to the well-being of each other, doing whatever they needed to make sure everyone had their needs met. Grace was so powerfully at work in them that there was no needy person among them. According to Luke, one of the results of the grace and generosity of God at work is people taking care of each other's material needs. So to answer that question, did God kill them? Did Peter know they were going to die? Is this the supernatural judgment? I've got no idea. But what does matter is we have to let the Bible be what it is, let the Bible say what it says, but more importantly, we need to go take care of someone's needs. We need to be real with one another. We need to be present with each other. And we need to live generously. It's this Jesus lifestyle. It's this kingdom lifestyle, this generous lifestyle that will actually make us energizing 
perhaps even mesmerizing to be around because people just don't understand it. They desire to know more. Have you ever had that experience where you're just helping someone out because you know that's the right thing to do? And they're like, why did you stop for me? Why, why did you shovel my driveway? Why did you do this or that or give me some time or money or hope? So my challenge to you this week is how can you show someone love? How can you take care of someone's needs? What's one step that you can make toward living more generously and participating in taking care of each other's needs? This is why generosity is a value among us here at The Well. It's because people will know us by our love. And I pray that this community in Binbrook and the communities that we're involved in, I, I pray that they'll know us by our radical compassion and generosity. I pray that people in this community will know that they, each and every person, matter to us and to God. And that whether this, this continues to thrive and survive and be sustainable, well, I'm going to leave that in God's hands. Because if it just becomes about making this survive, people already know they don't matter. But if we actually care about our neighbors and the people who are living in this community and play in this community and work in the community and all sorts, I don't think we'll have to worry about whether or not we survive and thrive because we'll already be making an impact. So my prayer is that we live generously so that people and the good news of this new kingdom we're a part of will always be at the forefront of everything that we say and everything that we do. People matter. At the end of the day, it's our relationship with Christ that's our ministry to others. But people need to know that they matter. That's why we began with acceptance. We began with peeling back the layers with authenticity. Tonight, we're, we're talking about how to live generously. And next week, we're going to be talking about how to live in community. It can't just be about church. It can't just be about programs. God didn't come here so that we could come to church, gather, stay in a nice, cozy place, and then drive home let the garage door shut behind us. I actually read one author years ago, and it's just coming to my mind now, that he actually writes that in his book. He kind of explains the whole Sunday morning or Saturday night routine, if you want to use that. And he says, is that what God had in his mind as he was hanging there on his cross? That rocked my world that day when I read that. Because that was how I had experienced God. But God is so much more. So as we close out tonight's gathering, just with a couple more songs, I invite you also to participate in God's generosity. I invite you to participate in the Lord's table, in communion, Eucharist, however you know. But it's to remember that God gave his one and only son, Jesus, for us, for the world. 
in order to reconcile things to himself, in order to renew things, restore things, all things, everywhere. And as we celebrate the Lord's table and we remember his body and his blood, we remember that this was given for us so that we may be in relationship with God today and forever. So I'll close in prayer. I'll invite the band to come back up and I invite you to just come when you're ready to just uh, take a piece of bread, take a cup, go back to your seat and uh, take it when you're ready. If you're gluten-free, egg-free, anything, there are wafers here in plastic baggies, uncontaminated. Um, but let me just close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, may we be known in this community by our love, by our love for you and our love for our neighbors. Help us to live generously out of the generosity that you've given to us, God. I thank you so much for everyone here tonight. And I'm excited to participate with them as we all participate with you in the reconciling, renewing, and restoring of this world. God, thank you for letting us participate with you in furthering your kingdom and announcing this good news. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.